How are you doing? Yeah, everything's fine. I got this. Everything's good. It's under control. I found over the years that there are three main scenarios in which people are willing to talk about their deepest thoughts about God, make observations about the human condition, whatever kind of serious discussion. Uh, there are three, three main scenarios in which people do this. Now, I, I do want to give one honorable mention, and that's over coffee. Uh, but the three that I want to talk about, the first one is people will have these type of deep discussions when they're supposed to be asleep. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's been my experience that some of the most transformative or significant conversations that I've had with people about real issues that are serious uh, happen way into the wee hours of the night. And so maybe you might recognize this anecdotally, but people have studied this phenomenon, and it's really just because we're tired, we're in stillness, we're in quiet, it's peaceful, we're a little less inhibited uh, by all the things that happen around us, and so we'll have, have conversations at night, and we'll stay up way too late, and we'll get up the next morning and be like, oh man, it was a great conversation, but we got to do that earlier in the day. It's kind of like with my kids, uh, you know, at supper, we'll try to have conversations about how their day went and say, hey, whatever you want to talk about, like, that's what we'll talk about. But it's not until after we pray and we tell them good night that they want to have real conversations. Dad, what? Why is there something rather than nothing? You know, uh, wait till the morning and I'll tell you over coffee. The second scenario, so the first one is, is when people are supposed to be asleep. The second one is when people are drunk. Um, I don't No. Okay. You guys took that a lot more seriously than first service did, so maybe we need to have a different conversation uh, this morning for second service. Yeah, I, if you've ever had conversations with people when they're inebriated, uh, your inhibitors are, are gone. Your, you know, I'm not going to talk about that filter is, is removed. Uh, the more you have uh, beverages, and so that is one of those moments that people really get into uh, the deepest moments of their life, maybe deal with some of the, you know, things that they don't typically talk about. Obviously, it's a problem if you need a drink in order to be able to do this, and so I'm not suggesting that you show up to your small group lit this week. Um, that's not a thing that we're going to try. Like, a lot of times we try to have a takeaway. That's not it today, uh, so, so don't do that. The third thing, and uh, the first two kind of culminate in all of this, uh, when the third situation scenario that people often talk about how they really feel about life and about God is when they're suffering. They're going through pain. I mean, sometimes in the initial moment of pain, we kind of have a filter. You stub your toe. A lot of times I hit my knees on the undersides of tables. You'd think I'd get that figured out at some point, but I still do it. And I have this filter that keeps me from saying what I really think and feel in that moment. I don't know if some of you uh, have that and have experienced that as well, but you experience that long enough or often enough, and you get a little bit more license to share how you really feel. You suffer the loss of a loved one. Man, that is a, if ever there's a moment is to share how that really deeply impacts you, that is it. Maybe you go through depression or anxiety, the loss of a job, some sort of difficult scenario, circumstance, or event in your life, and you deal with that, and we understand we might deal with some shame or perceived stigmas, but we go through that long enough, and we kind of give ourselves a license to share how we really feel in the midst of that suffering after that moment of pain. Stub your toe, you can kind of get past that. I mean, that, that initial moment and kind of deal with that. But deal with that pain for a week. You ever had that happen? Maybe a month. Extend that into a year. Extend that pain, throbbing, anguishing pain over a, the time of a decade. And that's, that starts to overshadow everything that's happening in your life. And so you're going to deal with it. You're going to talk about it. 
You're going to acknowledge it. And there's a moment that we have where we get to make a choice about how this painful moment in our life is going to impact us, how we're going to suffer through that. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we dive into the second sermon on the book of Job. In Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl wrote this, Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space our power to choo- is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And for a little bit of context, if you're not familiar with Dr. Frankel and his work, he wrote Man's Search for Meeting um, as a psychological uh, exploration of his time in a Nazi concentration camp in which his mother, his father, his brother, his pregnant wife were killed. He lost all of his people all of his possessions, all of his personhood, and if ever there was a Job-like scenario, this would be one of them. And yet, Frankel's conclusion in the midst of this unspeakable tragedy and horror is that we have a choice in how we face suffering and how we view God and trust him in the midst of that. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in Job chapters 3 through 27 this morning as Job wrestles with this exact choice but he doesn't do so on his own. And this is how this is set up. We go from a narrative, like here's what happens in Job's story, to uh, poetry, basically, and explaining this dialogue between Job and his friends. But before that takes place, Job's three friends show up. In Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles they had come upon him, and they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was." So sympathize and comfort here carry the connotation of Job's friends coming along to shake their heads and sigh with Job. And maybe you've kind of seen that or used that posture before. Somebody has gone through a painful moment. It's like, hey, we need to go be with them. And man, that just that stinks. Like this, this horrible, I'm sorry you went through that. And so that was kind of their plan. They got together like, let's go comfort him by shaking our heads and sighing in front of Job because somehow that's going to make him feel better. And so they go... But they see Job from a distance. Well, they don't realize that it's him because of how much he's changed. And remember that Job now has a debilitating form of leprosy. He's sitting in an ash heap outside of his town, and he's scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. And I don't know if you would recognize your best friend in that kind of state at a distance, but this is how they find Job. And so their response is not to just shake their heads and sigh. They rip their clothes, they cry out, and they toss dust on their heads. And typically, this kind of response and this form of grief and mourning is, resol- is reserved for somebody's death. And this is their response. They knew something had happened to Job. They probably had heard of the events in his life, but they didn't know what happened to him, how it really had affected their life. And so they sit there with him for seven days without speaking. Job is in such deep anguish and powerful suffering that it would have been inappropriate for them to even have the first word, and so they give that over to Job. This is such a profound moment that's only given a a small space here in the text um, that I want us to pause and, and make sure that we're clear and unpack about how meaningful this moment is for Job's friends to show up in his life like this. 
it's a significant moment because I know that most of us, particularly me, don't always have the words to give to someone, to say to someone in the midst of their anguish and their suffering. I mean, sometimes I walk with people through some of the darkest moments in their life when it comes to their anguish and their suffering, and I don't always know what the right thing is to say. I don't always have the perfect phrase. And Job's friends, when they came, they didn't have all the answers. And, well, that's not actually true. That comes later. But in those seven days, they didn't know exactly how to comfort Job. And yet the most powerful way that they communicated to him in the midst of his suffering is that they showed up. They gave him their presence. When someone is in distress, you might be a fantastic human being. You might have profound and encouraging things to say. But all of that rings hollow when it's said at a distance, when it's commentary. The thing that will leave the deepest felt impact in somebody's life when they're suffering, when you're suffering, is when somebody shows up for you. I mean... The moments that I think of through my life where I dealt with some of my darkest times, I don't remember what people said to me. I mean, it wasn't a word, it wasn't a phrase that kind of was a key that unlocked things and turned things around for me. But without hesitation, I can tell you exactly who the people are in my life that if I'm going through a situation like this, I know exactly who's going to show up. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And Job's three friends model this for us here at the beginning. There's a little bit of spoiler alert here because eventually they're going to open their mouths and the dialogue between these friends go downhill rather quickly. But there's, 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 there's something of massive significance that happens simply because Job's friends make time to show up for him in his time of suffering and need. When, when Paul writes this in Philippians 2 and, and talks about humility and valuing others ab- above yourselves, lack of humility in our lives is made manifest by us being unwilling to create margin or space for other people in our lives, particularly when they're amidst the pain. These guys, you know, Job's friends, they could have sent an employee. They were probably really well off and friends with Job. You know, they're kind of ran in the same circle. So they could have sent a car. They could have sent flowers, you know, and just said, hey, man, uh, sorry about your luck. You know, it sounds like you went through a rough time. Really sorry that happened. Or maybe they could have, uh, you know, just gotten together for coffee and just talked about, man, it really stinks what Job went through, isn't it, man? I'm glad it wasn't me. They could have done that. But they went out of their way to be with them. And much of how we engage with suffering, deal with our own suffering, has to do with how we view and treat others who are suffering. John Watson writes in Courtesy, This man beside us also has a hard fight with an unfavoring world, with strong temptations, with doubts and fears, with wounds of the past which have skinned over, but which smart when they are touched. It is a fact, however surprising. And when this, when this occurs to us, we are moved to deal kindly with him, to bid him be of good cheer, to let him understand that we are also fighting a battle. We are, not, we are bound not to irritate him, nor press hardly upon him, nor help his lower self. This is the source from which the phrase is often quoted, be kind, everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And that kindness comes from a presence, comes from a showing up, being there for others. One of the clearest ways the Holy Spirit prompts us to do this in the lives of other people, in my my opinion, in my experience, is when you think about someone and you're wondering how they are. 
That is your opportunity right there to reach out to that person, to spend time with that person, to really care and not just hope that when you ask them how they're doing, they say, well, fine, everything's good. You know, that you actually want a real answer to that question. I mean, how many times, I mean, there have been multiple times that I've kind of, man, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. And not just in the gossipy, like, I wonder what kind of dumb decisions they made today, but actually care about what's going on in their life and reach out to them and take time and space in your life, create that for that person to care for them. That's your opportunity to let them know that someone cares about them. That's your moment to set your own interests aside to care about the interests of that other person. And it's also how we build the type of relationships in which people come and are there for us in our moment of need. Like from a church standpoint, small groups, serving, being engaged in the community of the church is a foundation for how we accomplish the beginning of this mission of helping people find Jesus and love God. It's that we are there for people. That's how those things happen. And so... How we deal with suffering starts with our actions, and then come our words. Like I mentioned earlier, chapter 3 of Job begins the poetic portion of the dialogue between Job and his friends. And this back and forth aren't simply just a discussion between Job and his friends, but they're also, they also represent the typical thoughts about how humanity views and thinks about God's wisdom and justice in the face of suffering. And so once Job finally speaks... And hopefully you're reading uh, through, through this book as we're going through this series. There's a back and forth going through about Job saying what he's feeling and each friend taking a turn uh, in saying what they think. And we very quickly move from, as you'll see, good friends who show up to uh, the bad advice we often hear or even give when we try to explain how to manage our pain. And so after seven days of silence, Job starts off by saying, I wish... I'd never been born. I mean, this is how he's feeling in his life. He says it a lot more poetically in Job chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. He says, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. Job is in a very dark place, and it's very intentional in the book of Job for us to see him at the highest of high. He's the pinnacle of of human existence. He has all the things. He's blameless and righteous before God, and yet we find him in this deep, dark pit. He's at the lowest of lows. He wishes he'd never been born, and the reason we see this huge change in spectrum in Job's life is because we're meant to all be able to see the human condition in this. So no matter what part of the spectrum you are on and how good your life has been or how bad your life has been, it fits within this pattern and this path that we see in Job's life. And so this is representative of truths that, that include all of us and the whole reality of humanity. And so when Job says this, the first friend, Eliphaz, he's got something to say, that he's got the answer for Job. I don't know if you know what to say when somebody says they wish they'd never been born, but here's, here's one thing you could say. Eliphaz says, blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. So when somebody's in pain and suffering, you could tell them, well, obviously you did something wrong, so God's punishing you. So cheer up. Like that, there you go. That's because it's in the Bible, so you could say that. Job chapter 5, verse 17. Don't, don't be like Eliphaz. Don't, please please don't, don't say that. And if you do, don't tell them, you know, you're from Velocity. All right. 
Bildad, Bildad takes a slightly different approach. This is the second, second friend, and this is what he says in Job chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. He says, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. In other words, Bildad says, well, you're the reason that your children were killed in that tornado, that happened because they were being punished by God. And so you're making the same mistake and you need to repent and then God will, he'll give you all your stuff back. And so that's, that's the way life goes. Don't, don't, be, don't be like Bildad, please. Like, don't, don't say that to people because that's not how God operates. It's not consistent with his nature and his character. Zophar, the third, third friend later on, he chimes in. He needs to get his peace in as well. And he says in Job chapter 11, verse 13 through 15, Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free from a fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. And so, man, Job, if you would just stop doing the stuff that you're doing wrong, you'd be fine. See, in a nutshell, Job's three friends are communicating the conventional ancient Near Eastern wisdom of the day when it comes to how God relates to humanity, which I think is the same wisdom that I think is essentially prevalent today as well, that you suffer, when you suffer, it's because you've done something wrong. And that's how God works. It's very simple. It's very cut and dried. And can that be true? Absolutely. Perhaps more often than not, that is the case. I mean, I've done dumb stuff before, and I've had the consequences for that. But Job, as we found out last week in the beginning of the book, Job stands as this blameless, paradoxical representative of bad things happening to someone who doesn't deserve it. And so his response is his friends are, they just want to say what they came to say. They just want to repeat the conventional wisdom of the day. They're not really caring about what's going on in his life and understanding and hearing how he's feeling in the midst of that. And his response, uh, one of his responses in Job chapter 16, listen, uh, you need to read through Job just to uh, be exposed to ancient Near Eastern insults. Because Job has some amazing things that he says to his, his friends as a response to their, their uh, words to him. In Job chapter 16, verses 2 through 5, for example, he says, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort my, from my lips would bring you relief. See, his friends are communicating what they believe is how God operates, and that's on a very strict sense for and form of justice. That if you are wise and good, you will prosper. If you are dumb and bad, you will suffer. And from that standpoint, like that seems to make sense. That would make sense as a way to order things and, and, and God to kind of be like that because he's, he's justice and he's going to do what's right and punish what's wrong. But even Jesus clues us in that this is not necessarily consistent, fully consistent with the nature and character of God. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus points out that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the un- unrighteous. 
And what's happening in this dialogue between Job and his friends in this book is that the notion that God runs the world on a strict sense of justice, at least the way that we would define it, is being rejected. In fact, in chapter 42, God calls out Eliphaz and the other two friends, Bildad and Zophar, and says, hey, you guys need to make some burnt sacrifices, and you need to ask Job to pray for you, because you've totally gotten, what you've said about me is so wrong, and my anger is kindled against you, that, like, Job needs to pray for you, for me to, like, strike you down, is basically what he says. And so, it may sound strange that the book of Job would call into question that God runs the world on a strict form of justice, But the reason why Job sets this up for us and the reason why it's unique from all of the other uh, wisdom literature, other uh, outside of the Bible, ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature that deals with the problem of pain and suffering in the world is because God's justice includes the injustice of the gospel. God's justice includes the injustice of the gospel. And so Job's story of suffering is actually teaching us to transition and build into a story of trust because of how God moves and acts in our world. We've all heard bad advice attributed to faith in God before, some under the guise of being biblical ideals. And so one of the things that I want us us to do is make sure that there are certain phrases in our life that when we show up and try to help people um, and we're in their lives, that we're not communicating things that are inconsistent with the nature and character of God. There are three phrases that I think pop up quite a bit in how we try to comfort people in the midst of their pain and and loss. And so I, I I want us to cut these out of our vocabulary as Christians. So here's some bad advice that we kind of popularly give at times when we're trying to help people. The, the first one is this, is we'll say something like, God helps those who help themselves. It's made popular by Benjamin Franklin. He's not the one who came up with it, but it seems like something that the Bible would say, right? I mean, that sound, sounds kind of legit that, that, you know, if, if you do things that you should, then, then, you know, things that should happen will, will happen to you. And that, that seems like how it how it should work. And maybe, uh, you know, a warning against being lazy is appropriate. You know, in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul uh, establishes this policy in the Thessalonian church that if you don't work, you don't eat. So, so he says that maybe that's kind of where we, we get that from, but he was just telling them not to be lazy. But as a response to suffering, not only does this not suffice, but it's theologically inaccurate. This is not how God operates. Consider again, the injustice of the gospel. The second phrase that we need to cut out is this, God won't give you more than you can handle. Yeah, he will. I mean, if you think about God in those terms, God will absolutely allow you to have more than you can handle happen in your life. This phrase comes from a misappropriation of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. But you will absolutely face more than what you can handle on your own in this life. That's why God sends Jesus. It's because Jesus comes to handle those things. It's why Jesus invites us to come to him, lay our heavy burdens at his feet, and take up his good and easy, his good and light yoke 
on our shoulders, exchange our burden for the one he offers us to give us. You'll, you'll definitely have more than what you can handle, but we're not left alone in that because God sends Jesus for us. And finally, and here's the last one, and, and maybe, maybe the most egregious um, thing that is said and claimed about God when it comes to our theology of God, um, and that's this phrase, everything happens for a reason. And I think the goal is noble, Oftentimes when people say that, you know, I always hear this after a tragedy when somebody's being interviewed on TV, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I'm like, man, I hope people don't think that you represent all of Christianity when you say that, <laughs> you know, is what, what I'm thinking. It's like, no, not again. Somebody, somebody says, well, God wanted this to happen. It's part of his plan. And so this unspeakable tragedy that happened, he, he you know, made this happen so something else uh, could happen down the road. No, that's not how God works. It very, this phrase rarely communicates what many well-being people hope it communicates. And this is kind of the explanation of Job's friends for a perfectly ordered world run by systematic justice. But here's the problem. Not everything that happens in a world that is marked by free will and marred by sin happens according to God's desires. God doesn't want you to go through pain and suffering. It's not how he wanted this world to be. Our sin broke that piece of it. In fact, you read through the whole of Scripture and God feels the same sense of loss and pain and suffering alongside of us when things don't go according to his desires for our life. This, everything happens for a reason, and this is God's plan, this is what he wants for your life, Job, is kind of the argument of God's friend, of Job's friends. And at best, they mistake the real reason why these things are happening to Job. At worst, they made false claims about the character and nature of God. And so what are we being led to in the midst of the story of suffering and the bad advice these friends are given? Is that we can trust in the injustice of the gospel. That that we can be grateful that God does not order this world in a form of systematic, strict, systematic form of justice because it creates space for Jesus to come and be the sacrifice for our sins to be, uh, for us to be reconciled and redeemed back to God. See, Job's story so far is very one-sided and God's peace is coming over the next couple weeks and God gets the final say in this but, but the thing that we know about God and what he offers through Jesus is that we get the exact opposite of what we deserve. That, that Jesus coming is, is the height of injustice based on what we've done and how we've separated ourselves from God and what we have not earned from God. And so because of that, not only do we get to enjoy that and experience that, we also have the same opportunity to share that same injustice to others in the midst of their suffering by showing up and being there for them, even if they have deserved what they're going through, by being there at the hospital, by being there at the memorial service, by being there at their house when they're sick or when something fell on their house or, uh, you know, they're broken down by the side of the bike on the road uh, by creating space and margin for being there for other people's, uh, for other people to show how God chooses to interact with us. 
to be with us no matter what we're going through in, in this life. That's how God operates in this world. And I don't know why he chooses to extend this grace toward us, but it is extended to all of us, no matter what. And all are welcome to receive it. And that's the choice of trust that we're given in the space between our pain and how we choose to deal with it in this life. And so as we prepare to take communion together, this is, this is the final thing that I, I want to kind of wrap, wrap this together with. Uh, and and every, every week we take communion together as a church family. And one of the significant moments of that is when you consider Job's story and the fact that Jesus came and he was blameless, that he was literally the only perfect human being that lives. And so Jesus comes fully God and fully human, experiences everything that we do, uh, goes through all of the suffering that we go through, stands up perfectly under any temptation that we, we fall under, and yet he took our penalty that we deserve on his shoulders. That's the height of injustice. That is the injustice of the gospel that God offers to all of us, regardless of our history and our past and our future. That's what, that's what he offers to each and every one of us. And so we get to celebrate that, and we get to share that with others.